Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 John chapter 2. If your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 2. Thank you all for your prayers as Rusty and I went to Southern Seminary to learn about biblical theology, um, to work through some of that. And if you don't know what that is, I'm sure you'll find out in the near future. Uh, so, uh, biblical theology, uh, um, anyways, is a, is a, I'll say this, is a helpful tool in help us, helping us experience and, and depend on the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, you know, the, oftentimes the way we handle problems, like we handle, for instance, in this big, uh, sexual debate and, you know, um, transgender issues and gender identity issues, the way we tend to handle issues like that as Christians is we try to proof text everything. We try to find a, a text that explicitly says, thou shalt not let young boys enter into young ladies' restrooms. Well, there's not a, there's, you know, as they're allowing them to do in California now, there's not a text that says that, right? Um, so then the world says, well, you don't have a text that says it, so how do you know it's wrong? Um, but biblical theology is, is the idea of, first of all, the, uh, the theme of creation, or the storyline, the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, uh, and then tracing, like, for instance, the theme of gender throughout all of Scripture, and then what, is the, what does the picture say? What does it tell us? And, uh, and if we really believe the Bible to be sufficient, then, then it will answer every issue that we have. It just may not answer it explicitly. So, uh, I mean, it's not going to tell you whether or not to buy the blue car or the red car, uh, but it may tell you whether or not to buy the car at all, uh, or maybe buy a cheaper car. So, uh, anyway, sufficiency of Scripture. First uh, John chapter 2. Let's go ahead and read verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And this will be our text for this morning. I am going to try to preach a little bit shorter so we can get out of here. Uh, uh, I guess maybe 10 minutes won't make that big of a difference, but, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll try to push through this. So let's begin in verse 28. It says this, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or 
known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Uh, Father, let's pray your blessing on, on the transmission or the proclamation of your word this morning. Father, let your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to not only understand the text, but to love the message that you have for us in the text today. Uh, and Father, we, uh, we thank you for your grace and give you, giving us instruction on this particular issue this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's recap real quick. So far in 1 John, we've been tackling this idea of knowing God. We ask the question, how can I know that I know God? How can I know that what I have is the real thing? How do I know that I know God? It's really the, the primary purpose for which John writes this book or the, sorry, this, this letter, is how do I know that I know God? You see, I think many people through this life assume that they know God without genuinely searching that out. So I've gone to church my whole life, or I uh, intellectually assent to these set of beliefs, so that means that I know God. And, or we have, all of us have our reasons for why we think we know God. Maybe it's because it was the faith of grandma and grandpa or mom and dad or because I have a membership at a certain church or a certain denomination and they've got to be the ones that's right because they're the biggest denomination or, you know, whatever the case is. But we want to ask the question, how would John help us think through the assurance of our faith? How would John answer the question of how do I know that I know God? And that's why he writes this letter. How can those in the church in Ephesus or the Ephesians know that they know God? Same thing for us today. How do I know that I know God? Now we've talked about, we've answered this question a number of different ways that John has answered it so far in this, in this, in this book. And that is, we talked about knowing God means that you cannot continue to sin. You cannot continue practicing sin. Another one is knowing God means that you must know Jesus. You cannot know God apart from knowing Jesus. That's not this generic higher power that we, uh, that we somehow have a connection with, and we can do that apart from Jesus. We talked about, I know on Tuesday night at, at our house gathering, um, you know, ways that we try to know God or be in relationship with God apart from Jesus, apart from knowing Jesus. Uh, and so we talked about how, you know, we try to maybe earn our way into relationship with God, or we try to earn our favor with God. And, and the comment was said after we discussed through this, the comment was said, well, it's, it's really pretty much between either depending on Christ's righteousness or depending on our own righteousness. And that's exactly what it is. Not going to God through Jesus means we're trying to go to God or know God by our righteousness. 
instead of Christ's righteousness. It's one or the other. Really, everything else just falls underneath that category of, of my righteousness, my way, and so on and so forth. So knowing God means that we cannot know God without knowing Jesus. Uh, we also talked about knowing God means that you cannot love the world as well or in addition to God. It's one or the other. You either love God or you love the world. You can't have it both. You can't have both. You can't have your uh, cake and eat it too or ice, whatever that phrase is. You know what I'm saying? I'm terrible with uh, cliches and phrases. I butcher them all the time. Knowing God means that you cannot love the world too. And then lastly, in, again, in summary of what we've learned so far, is that knowing God means that you now walk in the light. That you don't walk in the darkness anymore, but you walk in the light. So today, today we're going to talk about knowing God and perseverance of the faith. Knowing God and perseverance of the faith. Of the faith. So if you wanted like a title for the sermon, I'm terrible at titles, but that would be the title. Knowing God and Perseverance of the Faith. This is to be distinguished from the traditional Baptist view of eternal security. Alright? Now, before we all start flipping out and having a hissy and, oh no, eternal security, he's going he's gonna to get all over it. Just, just give us some time to work through this, okay? And, 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 and you'll, you'll see, I think, what we're talking about as, as we work through this. So just before your panties get all tied up in a knot, we'll work through this. Now I don't, to begin with, what I want to do is, I don't know how you define eternal security, or if that's even a, a term that you're familiar with, but if you have any kind of Baptist background, unless it's free will Baptist, but any kind of other Baptist background, you're going to have a good idea of what eternal security, or at least you're going to have a definition attached to eternal security. So I want to give you my operational definition for eternal security, but it's going to be uh, probably more connected with the baggage that I've observed in Baptist churches and how their view of eternal security tends to flesh itself out. Right? So it's a lot of disclaimer, so let me just, let me just work through that. So the idea of typical Baptist eternal security is this. Once we've been redeemed, we are guaranteed a place in heaven. Now, I would say, yes, that's true. I agree with that. Uh, and I would hope that you do as well. But once we have been redeemed, we are guaranteed a place in heaven. Our salvation is secure. So, yes, I would agree with that. Um, and the babies are uh, kind of screaming this morning. Um, so once we've been redeemed, we're guaranteed a place in heaven. I would agree with that statement. But now let's kind of work through how this kind of fleshes itself out. And this is kind of where I'm coming from when I want us to draw a distinction between the typical Baptist view of eternal security. Uh, so next I would say, when it comes to typical Baptist eternal security, that there is little to no talk about the continued works that should accompany this redemption. There's usually very little to no talk about these are the works that should, that must, I would even say, accompany. And I think the text would say, I think John would clearly say, these works that must accompany that redemption. And there is certainly no talk, at least in, in my Baptist uh, upbringing, of working out one's salvation. As Paul would refer to it as working out our salvation. There is a sense of 
I can do whatever I want, and I will still end up in heaven. Now, now if you don't believe that, how many people do you know, if you grew up in the church, how many people can you list of people who didn't go to church, didn't practice righteousness, and yet you still consider them a Christian? I could probably list off dozens of people that the church would be incredibly hesitant to say, well, I think that they're lost. And yet they're practicing unrighteousness. We say, well, they didn't, they, the issue is that they didn't go to church. No, the issue is that they didn't love the bride of Jesus. <clears throat> they were practicing unrighteousness. Now, before it be, again, I don't want to give, I don't want to spend all day giving disclaimers, but I do want to say, yes, there's still a chance that that person could be saved and they're off dancing in la-la land, you know, doing stupid stuff like Ecclesiastes, but we're so hesitant to call them lost. Why? Because we have this view of eternal security that it doesn't matter what I do, I'm still redeemed. When John tells us something very, very different than that, and I think we'll see that today in this text. Now, good, now, no good Baptist would ever say, or would say the words, well, I can do whatever I want, I'm redeemed, right? I mean, we would, we would never say that. That wouldn't, that wouldn't fly. But let me, let me press in on this a little bit, because the issue is that they still tend to live like it. We still tend to live like it. Now, what's interesting, if you've grown up in church, if not, you'll just have to trust, trust us on this, um, People in the church have gotten really good at the external. We've gotten really good at polishing the outside of the bowl. You know, so we live apparent righteous lives. Um, but the inside is just incredibly filthy. Now every once in a while that dirt on the inside does show itself on the outside. And we kind of hush that away. But, but this was the issue with the Pharisees. You know, the, the Pharisee said, look with your physical eyes, you will find no sin. And Jesus says, but when I look with spiritual eyes, I can see nothing but sin. Your hearts are deceived. You're sinners. And of course, God doesn't look with just physical eyes of what's happening physically. He knows what's in our hearts. And so, yes, when we think of, you know, this idea of of traditional eternal security and I'm living this good life so therefore I must be saved the question would be is have you learned how to fake it and still be just as lost as the Pharisees inside your heart so what happens is because there is no visible sin and we ignore the internal sin what tends to happen is we become presumptuous about our faith what I mean by presumptuous, that we fail to observe, basically like presumptuous is, is the failing to observe what is allowed by like our faith. Like what does the Bible say? So presumptuous means we fail to observe the limit of what we can do sin-wise. We fail to see that the sin deep in our hearts dishonors God because we fail to see the sin we end up presuming that we're saved. Because we've, we've learned how to ignore it in, in many ways. We live a life lethargically and lazy when it comes to sin. 
Again, because we, we've, tried to, we've tried to just, well, that, I, I'm good on the outside. That's good. That's all anybody else sees. And, and so what we begin to do is, we begin, okay, and I'm secure and, you know, and the Holy Spirit, and, and I got the sense, of, and, 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 I, and, I, and I'm, I'm living this righteous life. And so we begin to go, okay, you know, I'm good. And we begin to now become comfortable with our sin. We just kind of let it sit there and we do nothing about it. Now, I don't care, I don't think the text cares how young in the faith or how old we are in the faith when John is saying these words. The encouragement to us from John is do not presume that you are saved. Do not presume that your sin has lessened. But instead, continue to make war with your sin. Continue to make war with your sin. You see, the problem is that knowing God, knowing God, as we're talking about, like having the real thing, knowing God is inseparable from our doing. Right? So knowing God is not, you cannot separate that from what we do. You cannot know God and not live it out. It's not possible. And as we've been working through 1 John, we've seen this utter rejection of continual sin for those who have been born again. Like John is saying, there's no way the continued practice of sin in your life happens when you've been born again. Now I wonder, I wonder for us, if we've, as we've been working through 1 John, if there's been a growing tension in our heart. I know there's been in mine, if, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I've been born again, why do I continue to sin? Am I really saved? Am I really a follower of Christ? Am I really a follower of Christ when, when I know I've got sin, but I just can't see it? Maybe I've become so self-absorbed in my own righteousness that I justify away everything that I do that is sin. You know, am, am I really a follower of Christ, because you see, the problem is that, again, knowing God is inseparable from your doing. Let's think about 1 John, just real quick, what he has said so far about sin and the believer. <clears throat> 1 John 1, 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Does anybody ever in here ever feel like they're walking in darkness? And I don't mean like as in you can't discern the will of God, but as in you're walking in sin. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How about that? So if you don't think you ever walk in darkness, John just says you do walk in darkness. And if you don't think you ever walk in darkness, that you deceive yourself. 1 John 2, 4-6, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How many of us can say over this past week that every day I have walked the way God would have walked? I can't. 1 John 2, 9-11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still 
in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Has anybody here over the past week struggled with hatred for your brother? 1 John 2.15 is the last one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I know none of us can say we did not struggle with that this past week. If you think you have not, you're probably just not looking deep enough. Did you love the things of the world this past week? I hope there's a tension in your heart. I hope there's a tension at this very moment of, am, am I really a follower of God? How can I, a born-again Christian, still continue in sin? I mean, does this mean that indeed I'm not born again? I think this is a healthy thought for us. You know, I heard often, you know, growing up, you know, it's not... Let's not doubt our salvation and so on and so forth. And, 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 and in a sense, I, I agree with that because that's part of what we're going to talk about here is how do we have assurance of the faith? Um, but what is the basis for that assurance? That's the key. What is the basis for that assurance? For many of us, it's because I walked an aisle. It's because I said a prayer. It's because I got baptized or I'm a member of the right church or I have a certain amount of righteous works I've done this past week. For many of us, that's our basis. But the question is, what does the text say that is our basis for our assurance in the faith? Again, I think this is a healthy question for us. I want to remind you from the first sermon in this, in this book that our goal in this book, and I think John's goal for them, is to draw a dividing line so that you would have confidence in one of two things. Either confidence that indeed you are a follower of God. That you would walk away from 1 John going, yes, I know, I follow God by His grace. Or you would walk away from 1 John going, yes, indeed, I have confidence that I am a follower of Satan. You would walk away with one of those choices. That we would know. That you would know where you stand. So the question for us today is this. As followers of Jesus, how do we balance the genuine struggle with sin on one hand and the reality of genuine redemption on the other? So I would encourage you, I would encourage you to write that question down if you can. As followers of Jesus, how do we balance the genuine struggle with sin on one hand and the reality of genuine redemption on the other. So if you want shorthand, put a hand in this hand, put genuine struggle with sin. On this hand, put the reality of genuine redemption. How do we deal with those two things? So there's two dangers. When we think of these two hands, there's two dangers. Living, assuming your salvation is one danger. So presuming upon your salvation, thinking that because, based upon the wrong reasons, or because I haven't dug deep enough into my sin, that I am indeed saved. Living with a false assurance 
of the faith. And what typically that produces is a lethargic attack on sin or even a complete lack thereof. The other danger is living without assurance of salvation. Living without confidence that I am indeed redeemed. Living without confidence in the power of God in your life is to live without power and confidence in this life. You're not going to be evangelistic. You're not going to lead well. You're not going to share the gospel. I guess I said that already. You're not going to disciple well. You're going to live without power because you don't have assurance. So what we want to explore today is how to enjoy. All right, so here's kind of the crux. We want to explore today how to enjoy assurance of salvation without taking lightly the sinfulness of our lives. So we just want to go, oh, I'm secure in Jesus and I got that sin over there, so thank you, Jesus, that you know, I don't have to pay the price for that sin and, and keep going. No, how do I have genuine, heartfelt repentance about my sin, yet still enjoy the insurance that comes from the gospel and God's work in our lives? John writes this book. I want to give you another kind of little overview here, but John writes this book for this purpose in 1 John 5, 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes these things so we would know this. John writes this letter for this very purpose so we can answer the question of balancing assurance with presumption. Listen to John's heart. 1 John 1, 3. He says this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John's desire, yes, is to draw that dividing line so that we would know where we stand. But his desire is not that we would remain lost or in sinfulness, but that we would enjoy fellowship with the Father. 1 John 1.9, he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because listen to John's heart. He wants us to enjoy the assurance of our faith and to experience genuine redemption. 1 John 2.2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So I'm telling you these things so that you wouldn't continue in sin. But if anyone does sin, listen to these words. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John wants us to walk in assurance. This is his purpose. So, as we think about this passage that we opened up with, we have to ask the question, what is going on with the false teachers? Because as we began this, John is addressing this huge problem of these false teachers in the book. Remember, overall, the false teachers were teaching something that would cause the Ephesians to lose assurance in their salvation. Does that make sense? So they're teaching something. So what is John trying to tell us? And if his main point is that we would have assurance of our faith, well then clearly, if he wants us to have assurance of our faith, then what's going on there is something that's causing a lack of assurance of the faith or of salvation. And we know so far that the main doctrine that these false teachers were denying was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we're going to dig into this a little bit further. So, if you're taking notes, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what's going on with that? The false teachers 
what they were doing was they were separating the pre-existing Christ from the incarnate flesh of Jesus Christ, from the man Jesus Christ. So the pre-existing Christ, who existed for all eternity with God in heaven, separating Him from the flesh of Christ. They believed that if Jesus was to take on the flesh, that He would be uniting with evil. So if the pre-existing Jesus was to take on the flesh, he would be uniting with evil. This Gnosticism, that, that all materialism was evil. Anything material, anything created like that was evil. So if he was to take on that flesh, he would be evil as well. Now here's where seeing the book, and I hope you've read at least once or twice through the whole book of 1 John, because seeing the whole book is of great value, because... I want to point out to you, it seems as though the desire of these false teachers was not to protect the holiness of God. I would say, based upon what we see overall in the text, their goal is not, oh, Jesus couldn't become part of this because that would make him evil and therefore God would no longer be holy. It seems as though instead, you should notice, I think, the trend in the text of John And the trend is that he is fighting hard that righteous being, like being righteous, John is fighting hard saying being righteous cannot be separated from righteous living. If Jesus was righteous, then he lived righteously. But that righteous being shows itself in righteous living. John is fighting hard hard the whole time so what was happening is this instead i think the false teachers wanted to live unrighteous lives and they needed a way to justify it they needed a way to say the way i'm living is okay they wanted to maintain righteous a righteous state of the soul right They wanted to say, my soul is righteous. Like, the spiritual part of my being is righteous without it having to show itself in fleshly action. So I can be righteous, yet it doesn't have to show itself in the way that I live. Therefore, if Jesus could be righteous, so I think this was a thinking, if Jesus could be righteous apart from His flesh, then the reality must be the same for us. If I can be righteous, if Jesus could be righteous and somehow exist in this kind of spiritual sense, but not really be united with the flesh, so He could still be righteous and in His flesh it didn't matter, then we can do the same thing. The eternal state of my soul can remain righteous and it doesn't matter at all what happens out here. What does that sound like? Modern Christianity, eternal security. I can be righteous and on my way to heaven, but my actions don't really have to display the same righteousness. I can do whatever I want because I'm eternally secure. But look what 1 John 3, 7 says. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The adverse to that is whoever practices unrighteous is unrighteous. 
So if we continue sinning, he would say, I don't know that you should have that kind of security that you think you have. John is saying, beware of the false teachers because they are saying you can be righteous and not practice righteousness. So in separating the state of the soul concerning righteousness from the actions of the flesh, they effectively justified their sin. We're okay to do this. And God's still going to accept us into His presence. It was just simply self-justification for the indulgence of the flesh. We can do whatever we want because this is the eternal state of our soul. The reality is, these people wanted to do whatever they wanted and to justify it away. Who does that sound like? It sounds like us. We want to do whatever we want, and then we want to find ways to justify it. Christians, let me ask you the question, how do you try to justify your sin? You know, the past couple days, as Rusty and I were gone out of town, I was dealing with an issue concerning the church and trying to think through it and found my heart anxious and worrisome, on edge. I probably drove him nuts because I kept bringing it up and kept talking about it. And and I finally, I I told him, I think day two, I said, you know, man, I've I've been sinning. What I've been doing is I've been justifying my anxiousness and worrisome as saying, well, it's my job to, you know, my responsibility to look out for these things concerning the church. And when in reality, what I was justifying away was my sin of not wanting to trust God with the issue. I was sinning in my worrisome and my anxiousness when the Bible tells us to not be anxious in anything, but to trust God. And so I didn't want to trust God. I wanted to trust my ability to solve the problem. And I justified it as saying, well, I'm, I'm one of the pastors, and I need to do this. I spent hours worrying. Now, I'm not over I'm still repenting because that sin still keeps coming back, and we're going to get to that in a second. But it was just simple. So how do you, as a Christian, justify away your sin? More specifically to the text, how do you try to disconnect the reality of your sin from the state of your salvation? How do you, how do you, try to set, how do you justify that I can be righteous in my eternal presence you know, in, in, before God, but yet not be righteous in my living? If you're a young Christian, is it just, well, I'm just a young Christian, I'm still learning how to deal with this. Is that how you justify sin? I mean, we believe in eternal security, right? It doesn't matter what I do, I'm still going to heaven, right? Uh, maybe not. Now, maybe you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ. How do you justify your sin? I find often with people who are not followers of Christ that they justify their sin by, well, as long as it, all the good I do outweighs the bad in the end, I'll be okay not what John says. John says, indeed, you won't be okay. So let's take a few moments. What I want to do is to see how John responds to the teaching 
of these false teachers? How does John respond to the teaching of these false teachers? First thing, I think, first of all, John has, I think, three responses for the false teachers. And don't worry, not all of that was the intro, and now we've got the three sermons to preach. But uh, this is, we're still, we're about halfway through. So, three, John has three responses for the false teachers. And I, I want to tell you guys, I was served incredibly well uh, in studying and preparing for this by, um, by a sermon that John Piper preached on the same passage. And uh, so if you have time, I encourage you, go, he probably said some of this a whole lot better than I would, and um, I mean, this is not John Piper's sermon, I mean, I'm preaching the text, but uh, I was just was encouraged so well by, uh, or so much by his handling of this text, and I, I think he has some good points, and so John has three responses for the false teachers. One is this, Christ is united with his humanity forever. Christ is united with his humanity forever. So that's kind of like sub-point one, or John, first response to the false teachers. Christ is united with his humanity forever. Look at 1 John 4, 2. It says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now just look at that verse and take a look at the word Come. Think about that for just a second. What is John saying concerning the humanity of Jesus Christ in uniting with his pre-existent nature? So not only is Christ's pre-existence and his flesh inseparable while on this earth, I think John is saying that his pre-existence and his uniting with his humanity is indeed, it began... In the, incarnation, in the incarnation, but will never end in heaven. He is tied and united to that humanity forever, for all of eternity. Notice the tense of the verb come versus came. If he said came, he came in the flesh, that would mean that there was a time when he was united with the flesh, but not necessarily a continuing of that time beyond his ascension into heaven. But instead he says he has come. So there's a, there's a sense of it happened and it's still happening. And at this point, this is past the ascension. All right, so this is John saying, yes, Jesus, even in his now uh, current geographical location, if you will, of being in heaven with God, that he has come in the flesh. He is still united with the flesh. So no, not only is Jesus Jesus's, uh coming like his pre-existent coming to this earth his deity coming to this earth not only is that inseparable while he was on earth but it's inseparable even now that god that jesus is in the presence of god in heaven they're inseparable then they're inseparable now he was united in the flesh then and he's united to the flesh now and forever jesus will exist eternally like us in the flesh Think about that. I mean, there's so many implications of that. I mean, think about the pre-existent Christ, not constrained, like in this body, like this body that has has, and then he takes on the flesh. 
not just for the 33 years or whatever that he was on this earth. That'd be easy to deal with, right? But no, he humbles himself, takes on the flesh for all of eternity. Now think about this. How could God, as the Gnostics at this point would say, how could God despise the flesh? How could the flesh be uh, inherently evil? Because now that flesh united to Jesus is not only on earth, but now is in the presence of God. And God can't not have something evil in his presence. So there's no way, if Jesus is still united to the flesh, he couldn't be in the presence of God if that flesh was evil. So it's kind of like John saying, yeah, you know, I'll meet you there and I'll raise you one. Okay? Yes, he was not only united here, but he's united there. And if he's united there, then certainly he could be united here. Instead, God loves his creation. And in Christ, here we have a human man who was perfectly without sin. Yes, this flesh can certainly, and for us, is certainly evil. Like, does evil things. But Jesus being united to the flesh was not evil. Second thing that John responds to the false teachers is doing always comes from being. Doing always comes from being. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteous is what? Is righteous. As he is righteous. So we as a church, we've talked about it this way. So this is kind of our family language, if you will, as a church. How we live comes from who we are. So how we live comes from our identity. Like who we are. Our identity always works itself out in how we live. Our identity determines our action. So our being determines our action or our doing. Being determines doing. John is saying you cannot separate physical doing from spiritual being. What you do always comes from who you are. Whoever practices righteous is righteous. So whoever is righteous practices righteousness. It's the same thing John's saying here. Whoever is righteous practices righteousness. There's a connectedness. There's an inseparability to these things. To be in Christ, then, as he says, as he is righteous, to be in Christ is to be righteous. Now, where in the world do we get this notion that someone can be a Christian and not practice righteousness? I think it's because in our Christian culture, we have justified our sin. And honestly, I think we call too many people saved that we should just call lost. I don't know why we're so afraid of that. We say, well, because I'm not the judge. You're not the, ju- the ultimate judge who lays down the gavel and says, you're going to hell. But you have a responsibility to a believer, a fellow brother, to say, Man, you're not living in a way that displays that you're righteous. You're living in a way that displays unrighteousness. It is not loving your brother to let them assume they're saved and thus they end up in hell. That's not love. Love is to say, brother, you're not living a life that indicates you're righteous. You're living a life that indicates you follow Satan. That's love. 
as we've said it before in the past, if someone was standing in a railroad track and there was a train coming their way, is it love just to go, well, I'm just going to kind of let them do their own thing. I don't want to step on their toes. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend them. Is that the loving thing to do when a train's headed down the track and they're standing right in the middle of it? No. What's the loving thing to do? Go shove them off the railroad track, right? Like, don't ask them. Just go do it. Hey, do you mind if I offend you for a moment? <laughs> just go, go shove them off the track. Right? Where do we get... The, this, is, this is what I've said. I think this is just, this is just wisdom. But I think... And I'd much rather assume someone lost, lead them to the cross and find out that they were indeed saved, than I would to assume them to hell and wish I would have said something. Come on. Because the righteousness in your life confirms the righteousness in your spirit. And a lack of righteousness confirms the lack of righteousness. Lack of, lack of righteousness in your life confirms the lack of righteousness in your spirit. Now I want to encourage us. When we, when we think of 1 John here, and again, this is why having a, a bigger picture than just these few verses, because I don't have time to, to walk through any, any other big sections of passages this morning, but I think what John is saying, though, it's, it's more of a pattern. Does your life pattern look like one tending towards righteousness or tending towards the justification of unrighteousness? Now again, we can have this shiny bowl on the outside. So don't want us to think, do I, okay, so I don't do drugs, I don't drink alcohol, I don't sleep around on my spouse, so yes, I'm not practicing righteousness or unrighteousness, therefore I must be righteous. Those are the easy ones. Okay? Most of us probably don't do, if, if you're not redeemed and you don't do those things, it's probably more for fear of man than it is for fear of God. And I would also argue that even if you are redeemed and you're, you, you've got the shiny bull on the outside, that's probably more out of motivation because of fear of man than it is because of fear of God. Because you, you're worried about the outside because that's only what people around you can see. If you were concerned and had fear for God, you'd be concerned about what's on the inside as well, just as much as what's on the outside. God can see both. So we're thinking patterns. You know, does our life tend towards righteousness or does it tend towards unrighteousness? Looking both physical, you know, and external and internal. So are you broken over your sin or you, do you just try to justify it all away? When someone confronts your sin... And you know it to be a reality. Do you respond in repentance or do you respond in self-justification? These would be indicatives of am I living a life of righteousness or am I living a life of unrighteousness? Because that unrighteousness is indicative of your being. The living unrighteousness is indicative of your identity or of your being because being always works itself out in doing. Who I am displays itself in how I live. And again, 
how I live. We cannot stop at the physical, what's going on inside my heart. So it's kind of like kids, to paint that picture, it's kind of like kids that grow up in the home and you, you've been so about behavior that you've taught your kids how to shine the outside of the bowl that they behave really, really well. But then someday when they get to college, I mean, we've all seen, if we've been around the church, they get to college and then, and then they become you know, crazy kids, you know, drinking and alcohol, all those things. And, and you go, what happened to my little Johnny? What happened to little Johnny was the true Johnny came out when he got to college. Because his heart was never changed. You just taught him how to shine the outside of the bowl. Instead of how to deal with the sin on the inside. We can't stop on the outside of the bowl. We can't do that in our lives. Because what will happen if we just shine the outside of the bowl for us is eventually the inside will take over. It will come out. It's just a matter of time. So thinking in patterns. Doing always comes from being. That's number two. Number three, those born again will not practice sin. Those born again will not practice sin. This is, again, John's response to the false teachers. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has, not, because he has been born, sorry, not that he has not, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So guys, practicing sin is evidence of and even confirmation of no new birth. Still the old person. Not practicing sin is evidence of new birth. And again, just to I don't want to just get this into our heads, pound it into our heads. We have to look beyond the external. The reason here, according to John, that those born of God do not continue practicing sin is because the seed of God now abides in him. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by seed of God, although it, it does seem like a, uh, like, like a sperm-type seed um, from, from reading, that this, that this seed then grows and, and takes over and that's the idea here, is that the seed of God becomes the driving force in one's life. That, that is, it's just growing and multiplying and, and is now the driving thing. That's kind of the sense that's going on here. The clear picture, is though, is that whatever God is doing in you, whatever He's doing, whatever the seed is, you cannot keep on sinning. It's impossible. So, when we say, or I, I've said before in the past, that works are not um, necessary for, or sorry, works are necessary for salvation. But they're not necessary in the sense that they are what save you, but they're necessary in the sense that they are the outworking of your redemption. Right, James says faith without works is what? Lukewarm? Half-hearted, nominal Christianity? No, it's dead. What does dead mean? That you can give it a pill and it can be revived? It's dead. It needs new birth. What does Jesus say about birth? About redemption? You must be born 
again. You must be alive. Faith without works is dead. So, I think we have to be honest. Though as we think about this, again, all of us continue to struggle with sin. And if we stopped right here, I think we'd be left in despair and without hope. I don't know about you, but I would be. If I continue on sinning, oh my gosh. But the glory of the gospel is that it doesn't stop here. John doesn't just stop. Jesus was our substitute and lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He was the righteousness that we could not be and cannot be. The perfect righteousness. I want to encourage you a couple, uh, you know, some of you, some of you need to stop living underneath the weight of your own righteous law and realize that you will never measure up and instead live under the grace of Christ's yoke. On the other hand, some of you need to stop assuming your salvation and make war with your sin. The gospel tells us that ultimately Jesus dealt with sin and then, G- and then John tells us how we, as born-again Christians, are supposed to deal with sin. So then the question is, how do followers of Jesus deal with sin? How do followers of Jesus deal with sin? If we are indeed born again, how do we deal with sin? So how do we balance not presuming that we are righteous, therefore ignoring our sin, with because what comes from that? that it come a lethargy, uh, uh, potentially even ultimately hell. How do we balance that with living in the assurance of our salvation? And this is a very fine line and a very dangerous thing. How do we do this? I think the answer is this: you deal with sin by the way you respond to John's teaching. And what is John's teaching? That's what we're going to wrap up here with today. John warns against claiming righteousness but living sinfully. That's part of John's teaching here. Claiming righteousness but living sinfully. And John embraces the advocating work of Jesus for sinners. So the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners. He embraces that. The fact that we will continue in sin, and yet we have an advocate. We have someone who works on our behalf and speaks on our behalf and went before on our behalf. He teaches that, and yet he warns us against claiming righteousness but living sinfully. The question is, how do you respond to this? That's the key to answering the question, how do followers of Jesus deal with sin? Is How do you respond to those two teachings from John? The reality is, you could deceive yourself, right? You could deceive yourself into saying, I'm righteous, I'm saved, and presume upon your salvation, and then end up in hell. The other reality is, is that if you sin, you have an advocate. That's a reality. How do you respond? How does your heart respond to those two things? So let's talk talk for just a few moments on how this teaching should function in the life of a believer. Number one, I'd encourage you to write this down. A follower of Jesus will run from assuming their salvation and run toward Jesus. A follower of Jesus will run from assuming their salvation and instead run toward 
Jesus. Presumption that we have this sin thing under control, that is the danger. Again, I think we've gotten real good at this polishing the outside of the bowl, and then we avoid the inside of the bowl with all costs, right? We we put aluminum foil after aluminum foil after aluminum foil on top of that bowl, and we just go, I don't want to see what's inside of it. The outside's good, it's sparkly, and we spend lots of time shining the outside of that bowl. So because we've perfected the art of righteous behavior, we've also perfected the art of ignoring sin deep within. Therefore, again, living, leading us to live with this assumption that we are indeed saved. The beauty of what John is saying is that when we hear 1 John 3, 9, so read these words with me. He says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and we cannot keep on sinning because we ha- he has been born of God. So when we hear those words, that teaching, we should begin, like your response should be to begin seeing the sin. Like you be, should begin to see, I mean, God, where is your, like your a sensitivity to that? Yeah, there's sin there. I may, not, I may not know exactly where it is, but God, I want to know where it's at. I mean, maybe you read that and you go, oh gosh, I did this earlier today, or oh gosh, I did that three years ago and I need to repent of that. But at the very least, if, if, if nothing comes to mind immediately, your heart goes, God, I do want to know where that sin is at. I want to know. I, I desire to root out that sin that's in my life. Your response is not, yeah, I'm, I've got this. I'm good. I mean, just ask that question to yourself right now. For many of us, we live ignoring sin daily. I mean, repentance really should be a daily thing. How is your heart responding to that verse right now? If you respond with further lethargy, lack of care, continued presumption, then the seed of God does not reside in you. I would encourage you to think, I am lost. If you respond with lament for your sin, remorse for your wrongdoing, desire to change, then I would encourage you that there seems to be evidence that the seed of God resides in you. Maybe you have been redeemed. Praise God. But how do you respond to that teaching of John? The second teaching of John that we need to respond correctly to, or the way we respond is indicative of our salvation, our redemption, is this. Number two, a follower of Jesus will turn their eyes from despair to hope in Jesus. A follower of Jesus... So one who's going to respond rightly will turn their eyes from despair to hope in Jesus. So let's think about this for a second. Maybe you see the sin in your life and despair overtakes your heart. You see sin. It captivates your life. You cannot get it out of the despair of your sin. You feel maybe helpless. I know there's been seasons in my life where I'm like, gosh, 
Wow. How do you respond when you hear these following words from John? He says, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? Is that where the gospel stops? Huh. But if anyone does sin, again, he's talking to my little children, so he's talking to those who are redeemed. He says, but if any of you who are redeemed does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So how do you respond to that teaching? Do you respond with indifference? Your despair doesn't change? You still feel helpless? Then there's a good chance the seed of God is not in you. Does this restore the joy of your salvation? Is your hope restored? Is your heart overwhelmed with thankfulness? Do you go, oh God, I don't deserve it, but I believe it. I have an advocate that when I am a dreadful sinner, that he stands there on my behalf, saying, Father, I cover his sin. My blood paid the price. Is your hope restored when you hear that teaching from John? If it does, if it is, I think, the seed of God may very well be rooted in your heart. So, the redemptive power of God's Word. We, you know, we talked last week about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. When we have been born again, the Holy Spirit works in such a way that when we hear God's Word, it is restorative to our souls. puts pieces in the right order and aligns the stars of our heart, if you will. Brings it back and it restores us ultimately to the image of Jesus Christ. This is different than hearing that we have a Savior and then using that to overlook and pass over the sins of our heart. Right? That's, there's a difference between those two things. Hearing the Word and it bringing about repentance and then joy in God's salvation versus hearing that Jesus paid the price for my sins. So that means this stuff over here I don't need to worry about. There's a big difference between those two things. Guys, at the same time, the Spirit also does not heap the practice of sinning on our souls as a weight that we cannot bear. The goal of the gospel is to not bring about despair upon salvation, but hope in salvation and despair without salvation despair guys is for those who know not jesus despair is not for those who follow jesus he tells us instead what's john say what's the holy spirit say through john that we have an advocate we have someone who stands on our behalf so perseverance of the faith is really a title, I think, that more appropriately describes our view concerning the security of the fate of the redeemed. 
Because we have, guys, is this something that just, like, is this idea of not practicing sin and everything we've just, is, this, is that just going to happen? Is that something you just sit back passively and it just, it just kind of comes about? Like, well, I'm eternally secure, so everything's good to go. To me, John's words here just boldly proclaim, persevere, my brothers. But when you fail, understand you have an advocate. But persevere. When you fail, you have an advocate. My brothers, persevere. But when you fail, you have an advocate. We must persevere in living out our salvation. We must remember, though, that that perseverance is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. It's guaranteed because it's, as Philippians 2 tells us, it's God who is working in us to will and to work for His good purposes. So even our perseverance, even though we're going to run the race, we're going to beat the flesh, we're going to work hard, we still ultimately understand it's the grace of God that's working through us. We must also remember that those who did not persevere here in Ephesus, the ones that did not persevere, the ones who left them, who went out from them, he says were what? Never a part of them. He doesn't say that they lost their, their salvation. He says they were never a part of them. They were never a part of you. So how do we balance assurance in the faith with, with presumptuous living in our self-righteousness? We respond rightly to John's teachings. What are those teachings? We have an advocate when we sin. We run to him. We do not live assuming, the other teaching, we do not live assuming our righteousness, but instead we run to him. We depend on his righteousness for our righteousness and when we are unrighteous, again, we depend on His righteousness. This way, guys, this way, we live dealing rightly with our sin and yet living powerfully in the assurance of our salvation. I'm going to pray for us. Father, uh, thank You that we have an advocate that stands before You not in eternity past, not just at one point on the timeline, but Father, we have an advocate that stands in your presence right this very second, and my words do not go out into the darkness as if not heard by anybody, but they are heard by you this very moment because they come through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. For that when we sin and we run to the advocate that our, our, redemption, that our, our repentance does not fall on deaf ears but instead is met with the loving arms of a father who loved his son and loved this world so much that he sent him to die on the cross for our sins. And it's through his power and through your grace and your mercy on us, Father, that you hear these words of repentance it's also through his blood that you hear our words of joy and Father your love is so deep for us Father we could not stand before you now if it wasn't for your work Father we could come into your presence not because of anything we have done, but in spite of our sinfulness, we walk into your presence. 
because of the work of your son Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, thank you for that. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us?